The Akkad and Kokai Report, episode number 122. Welcome to the Akkad and Kokai Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this next episode of the Akkad and Kokai Report. We are delighted to have back on the show uh, Dorit Rice. Uh, Dorit is a legal scholar. She's a professor of law at uh, Hastings uh, School of Law uh, in San Francisco. Um, she obtained her uh, law degree from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and uh, a PhD from the University of California in uh, Berkeley on jurisprudence and social policy. Her main focus uh, professionally has been, uh, or one of ma- her main focus has been on vaccines, and we had her on the show about a year ago. Um, it was a very interesting, in fact, one of our most popular podcasts, a little debate on on uh, vaccine mandates. But uh, Dorit is back here to to teach us about uh, an aspect of, of this epidemic that I, I think is very uh, intriguing, although perhaps still speculative at this point, which is the the, the uh, liability of either persons, individual persons, or companies in regards to infecting others. Dorit, welcome to the show. Hello. Great to be back. Great to have you uh, uh, on the show again. Let me t- tell you, give you two, two scenarios. Um, mm-hmm. And again, we don't know the details necessarily uh, the, way, the way they, you know, a court of law would, would have them. But um, there was a, a, a case report from South Korea where a woman... Um, was infected with a virus. It was the epidemic was. I can't remember if it was known or not, but but certainly she received orders from the doctors uh, not not to go out. She went to the hospital. She had a fever. Against medical advice, she went out. She went to a big church. Um, I think on two occasions she defied the medical orders. I mean, they were not legal orders, but they were you know strong advice. Yeah. You know, to stay home. She had a fever. And, and uh, hundreds of cases have, can be traced back to her and, and yeah. her, her behavior. Uh, that's one, one case. Another one here in the United States, there's, again, we don't know the details necessarily, but there's a, an employer, a big uh, meatpacking company in uh, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Allegedly, they told employees to keep coming. Uh, now, there's, there's no lockdown order in, in, in South Dakota, yeah. so they were free legally to do that. But... Possibly, their the attitude of the employer was a little bit reckless to uh, ask employees to come to work, and then uh, there's a huge outbreak related to that company. Um, so those are two scenarios that that yeah. uh, you know raise the, the question about you know are these people liable? Can they be held liable? Obviously, there's no precedent related to this new pandemic, but mm-hmm. there may be something in the literature or in case uh, precedents about infectious diseases. So what yes. what can you tell us? So um, a number of things come up from here. First of all, legally, we treat individuals and corporations more or less similarly. They're both legal actors. Corporations are fictional legal persons. And the important thing to remember is that there's precedent about uh, holding people liable for infecting with infectious disease going back more than a century. So to give you a couple of cases of that, in 1884, in a case called Smith versus Baker, a, a woman who owns a boarding a house sued a man who brought in children with pertussis, whooping cough. Okay. The, uh, the, the man brought the children in, 
the, her, the woman's own children and children of uh, residents were infected. It caused her costs, and she says distress, and she sued for those costs. And the court said, yes, you can bring that claim. There is a co cause for damages here. So infection, uh, sorry, a liability for infectious disease is not new. There's been other cases since. Uh, going back to your other example, the meat plant, in uh, Stubbs versus Rochester in 1919, a man called Stubbs, obviously, uh, sued the city of Rochester for uh, negligently polluting a water source that he said caused him typhoid fever. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the court allowed that case to go forward. That case is actually really interesting because there wasn't even a question about whether he can sue for infection. The question there was, did the pollution actually cause his typhoid fever? Typhoid fever can be caused by a number of things. And narrowing okay. it down to pollution right. it can so be done absolutely. So it's more of a forensic, a forensic problem of tracing exactly. the, the, the source to the infection. Okay. Exactly. In the 1980s, a lot of cases looked at uh, HIV infection. Um, so there were both cases in negligence, people who I didn't know that they were infected, but should have known mm -hmm. and infected others, and cases that were handled under battery, where people who knew they had HIV didn't tell their sexual partner and the claim was not telling your sexual partner that you're infected is actually a battery. You're intentionally causing harm to the other person. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a long and respectable history of people suing others for infections, infecting them with infectious disease. Now, the most usual framework this would be handled under would be a negligence framework. So a woman who, in, in your case, you're describing someone who knows they're infected. That might even take us to an intentional level, but let's start with negligence because a lot of time you won't have good evidence of intent. So for a negligence framework, you have to show first that the conduct was unreasonable. Note, not illegal. It doesn't have to be illegal, just unreasonable. Going against medical advice, as in your example, is probably unreasonable. Right. You have to show that the unreasonable conduct caused harm. So for example, the, uh, in, in South Korea, you're describing a situation where we have actually pretty good evidence that it was this woman who infected others and not another source. You'd have to show that in many cases. Here, the emerging evidence that COVID-19 can be asymptomatic can raise questions because a defendant will come in and say, well, maybe it was my, it, maybe it was me, but there's a lot of asymptomatic carriers. Maybe it was someone else. Sure. That would be easier when there isn't social distancing, when there is simply because you're in contact with less people. Right. Uh, so you'd have to show cause. You'd have to show what we call proximate cause or scope of liability. So that's not an issue for first generation infection. That's not an issue for the people directly infected by your person. But as we get further, as they infect others, at some points, the court usually draw a line and say, this far and no more. So at some point you might draw a line. In the mix, packing plan, you can ask, so you were negligent in allowing your workers or making your workers come to work infected. Maybe you were even reckless, as you're saying. How far do we take it? So we can say the workers themselves would may have a case, although in the United States at least, normally workers' compensation would prevent regular tort liability. Workers' compensation is designed so that problems in the workplace are handled without having to show fault but it also limits your access to the regular courts. I see. Uh, but if they handle the meat, people who eat the meat can complain. And there you are, I have a question of how far do we go? 
the meat traveled, let's say, three states for two weeks. Can we still trace it back to the plant? That's going no. to be tricky. Okay. Uh, so that would be the, the outline of an, a negligence case. Okay. And you may have questions on each part. Yeah, let me ask you. So mm -hmm. you say that the courts have allowed cases like these to proceed. Mm -hmm. um, have they actually, have people, individuals be found guilty? Um, I mean, I, I, I assume in certain cases they are found guilty, others they are mm -hmm. not, but, but there are precedents for finding them guilty. Yes, so I would use the term liable. Guilty is usually for criminal law. And, okay, okay. And uh, that, I know that's very technical, but the standard of uh, proof would be a different in a criminal case. You'd have to show beyond reasonable doubt. In this kind of case, you just have to show that it's 50% or more more likely that the defendant was the cause of the harm. And yes, the, for example, in the Smith versus Baker care case I mentioned, and in quite a few HIV cases, people were found liable and had to pay pretty high damages. Um, I don't know what happened in Stubbs because what happened in a lot of cases is they're dismissed on one part of the case. They go back and a higher court says, no, 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 this fills this element. And then they go back down and often they're settled without okay. ever getting to it. So you don't know how it really ended. Baker was allowed to compensate and other uh, many HIV cases ended in compensation. Okay. Um, so you, you give a history spanning, uh, you know, almost 100 years. Um, are these sort of um, rare cases or unusual or, or is it getting more and more common? What, what's the trend? Mm -hmm. So in the early days, it was not common. Uh, they were rare cases. In part, if the disease is very common in the population, it's hard to show causation. It's hard to trace it to its source. So these cases tend not to go very far just because of that. Uh, for example, you'd have a much easier time showing who caused your measles case today than you would in 1960 when measles was very common. Right. So just by that, uh, these cases used to be um, pretty rare. They really exploded under the HIV um, uh, epidemic. Right. Yes, I, I don't know if you call it an epidemic, a crisis, a scandal, or what the right term, but yes, under the HIV experience, which uh, I was a kid then, but from everything I read was an incredibly horrific uh, experience to many, many people, uh, probably a lot like many of us feel today. And mm -hmm. um, so there were a lot of cases that it went to the level where insurance companies actually change the insurance policy to prevent people's... Uh, so you may not know this, but most of us aren't that rich. Most of us would have tort liability covered by our homeowner insurance or renter insurance. That actually includes covering you if someone sues you in torts. Insurance company changes those policies so that homeowners and renters aren't covered if they infect someone else with an infectious disease. I see. And broadly speaking, not just HIV, sort of broadly speaking, infectious disease. Yes, yes, exactly. They could have changed it to limiting to sexual transmitted disease, but they changed it broadly to no infectious disease, which, by the way, would create a problem in your scenario, because although you might have a legal case on all levels, the indiv other individuals would, may not have coverage, may not have insurance coverage for it. Right. Or may right. not have any way to pay you. Right. Um, that's so how do you how do you go about uh i mean it seems like the it's a very tenuous uh, link okay. to make here um especially when you're talking about the coronavirus which is you know spread via respiratory route at least the thing with hiv was is that you know you needed very close intimate contact mm -hmm. 
So, uh, how would you even begin to make that link? Good. So the starting point is to remember that you don't need to show it to absolute certainty or anything near. This isn't a scientific a paper when you need to show a 95% statistical significance. The barrier is 50% or more. And the way you would show it is first by tracing exposure. You, you draw a timeline and you would say, given the timeline and my conduct, these yeah. are the exposures I have. It's very unlikely there aren't a lot of other options. You, you, you'd need a case yeah. like that. This is the, the problem. Thing, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let, I'll yeah, let you finish. The other thing is, um, if you have, so for example, for measles cases, they often do uh, identify the, the uh, viral uh, type. So if you have a way to identify viral type, and uh, there are some, there is some variation in COVID-19, but I'm not sure if enough to do that, that could also help. But most of it would be, you'd have to make a convincing case that would convince the jury that this is the likely source. You wouldn't have to completely rule out other options, and yeah. you wouldn't have to make a foolproof case. Just but the history, you know, the, you know, when it comes to the interaction of science and, and the law, you know, yes. the even the recent history isn't a very good one, right? Um, for instance, take uh, bite bite records, or what is it? Bite uh, what is that? Bite uh, bite marks on mm -hmm. victims, right? Um, yeah. You know, you know, back, you know, it started with uh, what's his name, the Charlie the Charles Manson murders, mm -hmm. and there were some forensic scientists who said, oh, these bite marks per mark perfectly, and you know, you have an expert that's there and expert is a forensic odontologist and you know there's been a number of cases i don't know if you're aware i mean you're aware but there's been a number of cases where you know there have been basically these 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 fake people with forensic odontologists that go up there and say i am this is certain and this is in this is in criminal courts where the, the burden of proof as you're saying is much higher and they yes. say you know there's no question in my mind that this bite mark was made by that man right and you can see what would happen here. I mean, here it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> you could get some expert yes. to basically say, you yes. know, uh, you know, it is, it is, you know, it is certainly plausible and possible that this, this, this infection was caused by this interaction over this period of time. But we, we I mean, we know in medicine that there's, there's just no way. And how would you even quantify, quantify that? I mean, I feel like, I really feel like this is something that the courts have really no, no, not much business in. So there's three three levels on what you're speaking, and, 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 and there's certainly a lot to what you're saying. The first level that you're saying is courts are not suited to do this. Uh, and you, you're completely right that courts aren't populated by scientists. The people who, the judges are not trained in science, they're not supposed to be. That's not their main, main job. So to some degree, they do depend on the expert. And part of the question is, how do you gatekeep the expert? However, we need some way to compensate cases where people are hurt. And one of the ways they can be hurt is by an infectious disease. Right now, we don't have the best, a great alternative to court. So one suggestion that was raised as an alternative to the way we do these things is health courts that will have, in addition, experts. That raises its own question. For example, how do you appoint the experts? Would, um, would a scientist who uh, wanted to devote their career to research really stop the research and go serve 10 years in a court? Or would we end up with people that aren't experienced scientists? And so in, when you're talking about the human system and when the, assuming you were saying, sometimes it's fair to compensate the victims of uh, situations where people were negligent and infected others, you have to find a way to do it. One thing you're saying is courts aren't great at this. 
but that raises the question, what's the alternative? One of the things that, the other thing you can raise that relates exactly to your point is, the way we do it in the United States is, we currently use the jury system. So you don't have just the judges who at least have some experience in assessing evidence. You also are bringing in a group of 12 lay people uh, who often won't have uh, even the judge's experience at listening to evidence. Uh, that, as you're saying, made, makes it very much about the persuasiveness of the experts. Now, one way to handle this is really to have high bars of who can at, uh, towards who can be an expert in court. To some degree, the Dobert standard, which says uh, the evidence has to be uh, based on reliable evidence in the community, is trying to do that. It's trying to say only let in things that are supported by evidence, but again, it's applied by judges and they can be misled. Of course, they can make mistakes. Yeah. And, uh, and those then those certifications, you know, which mean something in 1984, you know, yes. you know, don't mean much in 2015, meaning, you know, the, the truth becomes <laughs> the truth becomes not a very yes, although that's uh, not just known a, quantity that although that's not just a problem with, with the courts. I mean, science also develops. Yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. I mean, yes. right. The whole reason the yes. whole reason the bite mark thing happened, you know, the bite marks yes. became less and less uh, of a yeah. valid uh, yeah. uh, point was partly because DNA started coming to the fore and started kind of yes. disproving it. I mean, the stuff. reality is, and you probably run, to, you probably both run into that in medical practice as well. Yeah. In reality, we often need to make decisions in conditions of uncertainty. We won't always get it right, but we still need to make decisions, and that's true both for the court, both for our policymakers in the government, and for doctors in in the patients' room. Well, the problem the problem in the courts is that you know certainly in the criminal system you know you could mm -hmm. take innocent people and put yes. them in jail, which is yes. really a massive thing. And in the and and again, it's not to minimize the civil uh, issues yes. here. Meaning, you could take companies and bankrupt them uh, yes. because of you know it introduces yes. a level of uncertainty that makes. Is there any is there any precedent to um, to a at least get a panel of experts, um, like you know, ju like ju like jury, judicial magistrates that that only do this and have them do it and take it away from yes, this so common. In vaccines, in vaccines, for example, we have a specialized court that handles vaccine injury and examines issues. Now that can be criticized in other ways, <laughs> but you can certainly have a group of people who that's all they do and they uh, acquire some expertise. So that's one way to handle it. Uh, Do we have and the and the vaccine courts? Uh, the, my understanding is is that <laughs> the liability is uh, uh, there. There's some liability caps or something like that. Is that right? Yes, you you spoke about this before. Yes, there is in in vaccine court. And by the way, in quite a few states, there are caps on two kinds of damages: pain and suffering, and death. <clears throat> Again, that's not unusual in states as well. It's kind of a compromise. Vaccine court relaxes some of the rules, makes it easier, for example, to, sh to show causation, removes the requirement of showing blame. And in return, it sets some other limits. For example, as you're saying, caps limit. Uh, California has a cap on pain and suffering without the same relaxation for, for medical malpractice. In medical malpractice, pain and suffering on in California is only up to 250,000. So, but without the same relaxation. So you could have a system. So, for example, New Zealand, to answer what you're saying, has moved all its non-intentional injuries to a no-fall system where you don't actually put blame on anyone. You have a set of damages that's limited that will cover medical costs and some other things, uh, but you don't have to show fault. And that, too, reduces the stake. I do want to point out that, as you implied or said, um, 
going to the tort system instead of the criminal system means the stakes are lower. So you're not sending people to jail. You are paying money. As you correctly said, also, it may end up bankrupting a company, although companies usually will have liability insurance. Uh, it might not be enough, but they will have it. Uh, so this, um, when the question is who should pay for the costs, at least arguably, it's a lower stakes decision. Uh, and then certainties, they still matter. We still want to get the best result, but they may matter less. Dora, has there been any any uh, tort that you know of related to tuberculosis? Uh, there, so the, there, yes, there are tort cases related to tuberculosis. I don't actually know cases of infecting tuberculosis. Uh, quite a few of the cases in tuberculosis are around the, the state's efforts to prevent infection. Because... Yeah. You know, because in terms of liability for companies and liabilities for other individuals, you know, tuberculosis is is somewhat similar in that in that there's this yeah. it's so highly infectious that it becomes yes. almost impossible to have an expert go up there and say, OK, out of this out of this room of people, you are the person that spread it here. You know, um, yeah. so I wonder. Well, remember, So tuberculosis comes into the United States, but to a limited extent. So you can actually say it's very infectious. But we had one person come into this factory that has tuberculosis. There just aren't that many cases. Highly infectious by itself, uh, if the disease isn't highly prevalent, or if there's no evidence it's highly prevalent, doesn't mean you can't trace it. You'd have it's to prove, no, I understand. But you'd have yeah. to prove that, you'd of course have to prove, I guess, that, that the patient, or sorry, the, the, the individual knew that they had tuberculosis. We're Not acting. We're acting against. We're acting against medical advice or something like that, or no? Yes, or you'd have to show negligence. Right. Negligence right. means you should have known something that would make it dangerous. So, um, in an example where you know that you have you have medical advice saying don't do this, that's easy. But uh, an example I, I raised in, uh, in an article I wrote about vaccines is uh, you know that you didn't vaccinate your child. You know your child has a high fever and a runny nose. You don't know that your child has measles, but you do know that you didn't vaccinate the child against measles. At least arguably, you can say that's negligent enough to tie you to, to, tie you to the result if your child actually has measles and infected someone else. So you have to show some kind of negligence, definitely. So, so yeah. Dorit, yeah, I, um, I understand uh, Anisha's concerns about justice not always being carried out in the courts, mm -hmm. you know, in the way that we would want. Yeah. But can you speak a little bit to uh, the social benefits of having this being part of the culture, so to speak, that people know that e even if, you know, in individual cases, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, there may be cases of that we would consider, you know, experts might consider flagrantly, unjustly, yes. uh, you know, adju adjudicated. But nevertheless, uh, can you speak about the, the social benefit that there might be if this were more common? Because right now, I don't think it's in anybody's consciousness that you can be sued for infected, infecting somebody else. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I, I want to reinforce that I agree that every time you have a human system, there's going to be mistakes and balancing the mistakes with the benefits. It's really a case by case question. And the benefits of allowing this. So there's at least three benefits we talk about when we talk about allowing tort in this. The first is deterring negligent behavior. That's probably more true for a plant, like you're in your example, than an individual. Uh, an individual that goes out when they're sick is often, is not necessarily making a rational calculation. Mm -hmm. So the idea of tort liability might not be high in the list of things. Uh, 
But for a factory, the fact that they know that they might end up with tort liability if they force their workers to do this can change their economic calculation and can be more effective at deterring them from forcing their employees to do this. So part of it is deterrence. Stop, uh, change the economic calculation and make people think about their costs. Another part is compensation, and that's probably more true in the United States than in countries that have a stronger social network. We don't have a very strong um, network in terms of healthcare costs. Many people won't be able to cover their healthcare if they get sick right now, mm -hmm. uh, given the way our social insurance works. And that's not even considering the result, the effect on their job and, and everything else. The tort system can help them cover those costs in a, in a very inefficient way, but it's something. It, it gives them some kind of recourse to cover costs that were imposed on them by others. Finally, there's um, a fairness issue. We generally think that if you act, the cost of, and benefit of your action should accrue to you, should affect you. Now, that's not always true. Often our actions spill over to others. But if you decided to go out and act uh, when you're sick and act negligently, and you infected someone else, there's something unfair in making them pay for your negligent choice. So, in so the argument for tort liability would be a fairness argument, a deterrence argument, and a compensation argument. Sure, sure. Um, can you um, speak to how that might develop over time, and maybe not you know, in other areas, not in inf infectious diseases, but in other areas? I mean, isn't the, it's sort of, it's, it's um, common law type thing where Yes. You know, I mean, initially, um, if it's not in the culture, right, it's unlikely that a court would find somebody negligent. But then over time, things may change. And, mm -hmm. and, and as people get more, you know, mm -hmm. it raises in the consciousness of the community that, you know, the, the, the courts will find people more and more liable at different mm -hmm. levels, different thresholds of behavior. Now, remember that negligence is actually part of our culture, at least our legal culture. It's something taught extensively in law school, mm -hmm. even if not applied always in this context. Uh, and remember that the fear of the pandemic is now very much part of our culture. So if it goes to a court, the fact, the reality we're living it will affect the way behavior is seen. seen. It's kind of in unavoidable. Uh, so it may already be enough part of our culture that those cases would have a decent chance going in. Uh, it, it may have spillover effect by getting people to internalize those costs. Um, there's a couple of other things that I'll, I'll raise in a few minutes about uh, about broader implication, but uh, this could, so we have had major changes in response to other tort liability cases. So for example, some practices in hospitals changed, not necessarily for the good, in response to tort cases. Uh, so this could change, for example, some of the employment culture, again, going back to your meat, mm -hmm. to your meatpacking example, it could make employees be more cautious about employers would be more inclined to cover a sick leave. We need, so one of the things that's, that we have that isn't a great public health aspect is our sick leave policies aren't that good. That encourage what is called, a, what you probably are aware of, presentism, where mm -hmm. people go to work even though they're sick. That's not unique to COVID-19. Our sick leave policy is bad enough that many people can't afford to take sick uh, leave days and they come to work and they infect others. If the employer knew that that could lead to liability, they might be more inclined to have gener more generous right. even if the state doesn't step in and put them in place. So that could be a, a benefit that would go beyond COVID-19. 
uh, and help us. Now, of course, there could also be uh, drawbacks. If people start, start suing their neighbors for infecting them with COVID-19, that's not exactly good for community spirits. Uh, so there could also be negative effects by increasing, at a time where we're already all under pressure, increasing hostility between people, uh, breaking down community ties when people are thinking about or threatening to sue each other. Right. Uh, right. I, I, yeah, it's, it's complicated. Um, but but the alternative then again would be would be what we're seeing now. I mean, in terms of yeah. uh, you know yeah, rules and 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 that sort of thing that are much you know blunt kind of blunt instruments. Uh, I want to raise two things that might uh, that I think Anish might also be more sympathetic to. One thing is you should be aware that there's one actor that we can't sue even if their behavior directly caused harm, and that's the government. Traditionally, government could not be sued in tort at all under sovereign immunity. The sovereign is immune from lawsuit. The federal government and all state government have passed tort claim act that allow us to sue them sometimes, but all of them have an exception for discretionary policy. So you can't sue them for the way they make policy, even if what they did is extremely harmful. So if you're saying, one place I'd like to be able to go is to sue the government for not mishandling the pandemic and doing A, B, C, and D and causing harm, you can't. <laughs> the other thing I'd like to raise uh, that might be more appealing is, um, we do have some ability, and it's limited because of the First Amendment, to sue people who are spreading misinformation, for example, about COVID-19 treatment uh, and about, um, about COVID-19 generally. It's limited, but there are some torts that allow you to sue for misinformation that caused physical harm. So for example, to give one example, uh, I think last week, the um, uh, FDA asked and obtained in court a temporary restraining order against the uh, Genesis 2 church, which you may or may not be familiar with, which sells something called Miracle Mineral Supplement, which is basically industrial strength bleach. They were marketing it as tr a treatment for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Let's say you bought their product and used it, and it's it uh, sloughed off your intestines, uh, the lining of your intestines, because that's what taking that spill bleach does to you. Uh, you could possibly sue them for misinformation that caused you harm. Uh, but that I mean that should be the case no matter what, right? Is there any specific? Uh, um, um... Uh, uh, handling of this in related to yes. infectious diseases or, or? So the way I presented the case was not great. Uh, it, it's not specific to infectious disease, okay. but it comes up here too. But my, my, the way I described it, I described a relationship with a seller. You can definitely sue a seller for a harmful product. But imagine that instead of selling you directly the MMS, they just told you MMS is great. You should get it. And then you went out and got MMS from someone else. I see then you could still sue them for the misinformation, even if they're not your seller. I see. You could see but that again, bad. Yes, go on. Right. You know, it's just, I mean, I, I think the sentiment is great. The intentions are good. But, um, you know, the practicalities of this make it uh, very hard to figure this out. Because some things are very obvious. Um, mm -hmm. You know, bleach uh, yes. in, ingestion and whatnot is obvious. But what about, uh, what about then hydroxychloroquine um, and yes. azithromycin? And, you know, I mean, every medicine has a certain degree of toxicities. Mm -hmm. um, that's, and... a, that's a great point. And one of the concerns about the misinformation claim, and one of the reasons it's a pretty narrow claim, is you really are worried about it being used against situations of uncertainty, where this might work, but you just don't know enough. Um, 
the, the elements of the torts are pretty stringent in this case. And the First Amendment does set some limits. So for example, um, you have to be negligent. There has to be clear misrepresentation and you have to be negligent in misrepresenting it. So you actually have to show that the information is not, it's not, is false at the point you utter it. So at least in theory, this isn't a tort that would be used for situations of uncertainty. Now, of course, you can still end up with a situation where the misrepresentation was um, innocent to some degree. I mean, in theory, you're supposed to show at least negligent, but the courts could certainly get it wrong. Uh, I'm not going to even to try and pretend that uh, that's not very, very possible. Um, like everything else, legal tools are tools. They can be misused, they can be used incorrectly. Uh, but the question is, are we, on average, better off with a narrow tort of misrepresentation or without it? <laughs> that's right. where we need to end up. Um, so there, before I ask you a more general question about, uh -huh. you know, sort of more speculative about what might happen in the future, do you have any further things you want to, you know, uh, inform us about uh, the yes. handling of infectious diseases in the courts? Yeah, the uh, last thought I want to mention that would be, uh, be even more troubling to you is that the, at least most troubling to Anisha, I think, is that there's a narrow tort uh, where you can sue, not because you actually got it this, but because you had fear of getting it. Uh, it's especially acknowledged in the context of HIV. Where, uh, so to give you one example, a woman was traveling in an ambulance with HIV samples. The ambulance driver, the carriers of the samples were negligent and it splashed her and she had paper cuts. Mm -hmm. So she had a fear of contracting HIV. She ended up not contracting HIV uh, and she sued for the fear alone and she was compensated. So you actually have a tort that uh, can allow people to sue just because they think they were, they have good ground to think they were exposed and they're suing just for the fear. It's a pretty narrow tort. It's hard to use. It's been rejected more than it's allowed, but sometimes people might be able to use it. Right. That's very interesting. And, and again, you know, we, we tend to recoil uh, regarding cases like that. Yes. And, um, and, and you know, and doctors are really uh, are distrustful of, of uh, liability, just, yes. you know, but I, I can't imagine medicine yeah. without without this, you know, without yeah. the fear of, of being sued, I think would be much, much worse for, for patients. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, as sad as it is, I mean, I think it's uh, it's one little thing that, that uh, you know, I mean, I think it, it changes our behavior and, and for better or for worse, I think overall it's, it's, uh, it's better than not having it at all. I think that's I think that's you attempting to fit your distaste of regulation uh, to a frame <laughs> to a frame that works, right? Because that, because that's the thing. It's like you if you hate if you hate regulation, then uh, then you need you need you need some other type of stick, and that stick is that stick is tort. Um, but we need to be very very clear on uh, some of the major issues uh, that you know we've had with tort. I mean, I, I think. And, and the reason most doctors are mistrustful is because because you know we find the medical malpractice system the way it functions right now as uh, you know pretty malfunctional <laughs> in terms of yeah. uh, in terms of how it arrives at the right mm -hmm. uh, how sorry how it arrives at at a certain decision so um, I, I mean you know and in kind of pushing back to Michelle I mean I, I think most doctors um, um, you know there, there's a certain um, I, I don't know that most doctors that don't have some type of 
you know, uh, psychological problem, some type of psychotic behavior, um, are ta- are making moves that may result in you know injuring the person that's in front of them. So um, beyond beyond tort, there's something into cutting into somebody or in, in terms or, or 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 doing something, doing a procedure in someone that's going to leave them maimed or 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 dead. Um, you know, as you've brought up many times, Michelle, um, do you want to be even if taking out the some of the ethical issues and the of, of, of managing a patient and kind of doing harm to them you know that that that, that takes a certain level of psychopathology to, to do that but even beyond that right um do you want to be the physician who has harmed you know x y and z people so you know there's rep, there's a reputational cost one bears even beyond the ethics so i mean i'd argue yeah. that that right. you know uh, we, I, I, mean, I don't the tort... dispute that. I don't dispute that. Um, at the other, I just think at, I just right. think that the tort. I just think that the bar uh, that we're, that that's being used here is not one that I'm super comfortable with. I don't think I don't think right. a, 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 a jury of our peers is one that that makes any sense. Um, I think um, that you know, you know, the some of the incentives that exist for for uh, uh, certain lawyers to kind of prey on uh, unfortunate circumstances that happen uh, some of those incentives are not well aligned so but, there but needs to be some actually, serious those are, those are good points but uh, yeah. speaking of regulation the legal profession I mean the practice of law is highly regulated too isn't it conceivable that it could be I mean, I mean there's a way it's the that's, fox that's... the fox guarding the hen house I mean when was right. the last time I mean, that, that uh, uh, there could be ways of 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 handling these uh, these liability issues at the level of of of, uh, of justice um, that is not that is that is better functioning than the way it is now. Every year we have very spirited discussion about that in class. So I, I mean, you both have a point. I, I would just build on what Anish said and point out that the jury is not the only way to do this. The U.S. is among the very is almost alone in having civil juries in these cases. You could have a professional judiciary handle it. Would that be better? Uh, Not clear. That because going back to your point, I, I think it would. But but that, no, that's something I would like to learn. Meaning, I, I I'm, you know, it's, it's all. There's always downsides <laughs> to things. But it seems like there'd be fewer downsides in a professional judiciary that you know specialized in certain things. Like uh, you know, so but what but. That's something I'd love to be educated on. I mean, what are the significant downsides that other systems have experienced with that? So the concern would be um, the concern of um, inbuilt profession that has its own biases and its own uh, prejudices that don't necessarily allow, allow align with medical uh, preferences or medical views. Um, so it's just a question, do you prefer a lay system or a system where you have professional biases that are different from yours. But you're, you're, both, you're both raising things that are a little, that are very true. I mean, on one hand, uh, I'm, I'm not going to even try to pretend that the tort system is perfect or that it's run by people who are perfect. And certainly, I mean, like everyone else, they, want, they have interests of their own, they try to pursue them. On the other hand, uh, while we have other methods of holding doctors accountable and we have it's a highly regulated profession as well uh, and it, there are a lot of other mechanisms for and as you're correctly saying a lot of them are internal wanting to do a good job 
they're also a profession with its own biases and sometimes you need someone from the outside to come in. Yeah, no, in fact, you know, and it's, uh, you're right, but in fact, it's, it's uh, in large part because the profession is so regulated in favor of the doctors that, that the only mechanism left is sort of medical malpractice and, and so forth, right? To, 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 to try to maintain some, some, some degree of balance. Right. But, but I mean, this is not this is not news, but it, it would seem to be it may be a, a better thing, as Dorit talked about earlier, to, uh, to say, OK, something bad has happened in order to, in order, you know, we have a system right now that 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 requires fault to be shown. And, and and to be honest, there are cases where, you know, because of documentation or, or what have you, because of the facts of the case, you know, it's hard to show fault. And, and there are cases where, you know, patients unfortunately don't get what they need i mean it wouldn't it be more sane it wouldn't be a be- wouldn't it be a better system to kind of view it more as insurance meaning if you if you have a c-spine uh, cervical uh, neck uh, surgery and that results you know unfortunately in paralysis of a 45 year old look that is going to happen sometimes with the surgeon doing everything just beautifully well that's going to happen with the anesthesiologist doing everything well um and you know thing thing things happen but but wouldn't it be better regardless of fault to be to have a compensation scheme set up for folks that have adverse events. I think that's what we all want. We want that as doctors so and patients is, want that yeah. as well. So what you this know is so where it really matters what your goal is. And, yeah. and I would point out that even the people hurt don't necessarily have just a compensation as a goal. They sometimes want either justice as they see it, which has some element of punishment, or they want deterrent. They want it not to happen again. So it really matters how you put the band. If your focus is on compensation, and I admit it's very tempting to me in some ways, uh, then then yes, a fault-based system is a problem. It's also a problem because it makes doctors very defensive, even when the right thing to do might be to compensate. They come in and say, you're saying I was negligent? It's almost by definition you're putting them on, on the fighting side. Uh, on the other hand, if your focus is deterrence, then you do want some of that. And sometimes, by the way, the doctors should feel that they were on the that they are accused because sometimes there also is blame that's correctly attributed. So it really depends. And by the way, notice that in the cases that uh, Michelle started with, none of them were about doctors. Doctors are currently um, one way to handle the COVID nineteen is. And that might not might be a very good idea right now is to provide uh, immunity to doctors treating COVID nineteen patients unless there's gross negligence. In a situation of a pandemic, that might be the right way to go. I, I know it's debated, and I uh, and uh, I'm not saying that I'm sure it's the right way to go, but it's certainly an option to consider because we're acting in an emergency. So the the question of a liability for COVID-19, I think, is a little different from the strengths and, and issues of medical malpractice, which are real enough. So where, where uh, a more general speculative question, mm-hmm. where do you see things going uh, in terms of uh, the way infectious diseases are, are handled in the in the legal system? Uh, uh-huh. I, so I expect that somebody will see more cases coming out of COVID-19, exactly for the examples that you're pointing to, where someone did something that's clearly increases the risks of infection. I think the cases that will start in the court are the, are the more extreme cases. The person who knew they were in, had, re, or at least has very strong reasons to think they're infected and went in anyway, uh, went to the gym, went to the pool, went to teach a, a class of three-year-olds that had grandparents. Or as you're uh, going back to your first example, the example of uh, a plant where the employers 
basically force the employees to come in or get fired. Uh, I think those will be the starting ones. And those are well within what are, they're kind of easy cases. Mm-hmm. Causation, as Anish said earlier, might be tricky, but that would depend on the case. I mean, causation is, a, is an issue even in car accidents. Uh, it's a, a part of every case. The right circumstances, going back to your meat plant example, causation won't be a big barrier. So cases where the behavior is egregious and the causal evidence is strong are probably going to be the first to come out. Then it's going to spread to a lot less certain cases. Um, Right now, so the the thing is, there's a lot of things going on and things are going very fast. The legal tort system is slow. Uh, It's going to be at least a few years before we see uh, the full uh, litigation that's going to come out of this. And there's at least a chance that a lot of it won't be tort liability, but will be against the stay-at-home order and uh, fighting to set, to set the line. And we actually need that. We need courts, and I know the courts are imperfect, but we need courts to step in and say how far the government can go in limiting individual rights in the context of stay-at-home and, and the other orders. You know, How's right. Mine that- should be wrong. Yeah. That's a great topic that uh, we, we'd want to address, which would probably you know, take a while. But briefly, can you just say a little bit about uh, yes. these uh, stay-at-home orders? Yes. So the starting point for the stay-at-home order is that states have surprisingly broad powers in public health, more than most people are aware. Going back to the tuberculosis uh, issues that Anish uh, raised earlier, uh, every year people in the United, there are people in the United States who are subject to a direct... Um, a, direct monitoring when they take the, the TB and sometimes are in, not necessarily incarcerated in a jail, but confined as they take the TB medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's perfectly legal, just as it's legal to quarantine people, and we do it routinely, who have been exposed to an infectious disease. Stay-at-home orders are a different order of magnitude because they apply broadly. They haven't been used in the same way they're used now in the past. So that's not accurate because we had closures in 1918, but 1918 was a very different legal situation than we have now. In 1918, we had cities that closed schools and so forth. Uh, I think it was mostly cities and not states. So we had state homeowners in the past, but not under our current legal framework. The, under our current legal framework, on one hand, still we have broad public health powers. We have a real public health emergency with a lot of uncertainty built into it. So um, courts are probably going to uphold most of the stay-at-home orders, especially those that are relatively soft in the sense, none of these are everybody stay at home for two weeks and don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. They all have exceptions for going to the store for some some level of physical activities and so forth. So they're probably going to be upheld. Where they run into trouble is uh, when, for example, uh, they signal out religion. There, there are probably going to be questions about cities trying to keep out people from other cities because the right to travel is a fundamental right. Uh, at some point, at least some cities are going to push the limits. So there might be a city that says uh, none of the people in the other city can come into our cities. We're going to do a cordon sanitaire around the around the city. That's going to push the limits and we're going to raise constitutional question. Ideally, we're going to move to a softening of the state-home orders and a move towards a m- more open 
environment with recommended social distancing. Remember that many of the states haven't aggressively enforced the stay-at-home orders. There've been some enforcement, there've been some fines, but we haven't seen wholesale mass arrests pretty much anywhere, I think. Right, right. Uh, that isn't happening because states are not as aggressive as, you, as, as it sounds just from the orders. Yeah. When, when they've happened before in, in uh, the, pandem- the uh, flu epidemic of, of 1917, 1918, you said mm-hmm. they were, were they ever challenged? Or is it so brief because by, by the time, you know, the epidemic is over, I mean, the, you know, the, the cases are, or was there a challenge? Because clearly it's, it's, uh, it's an order against people who are themselves not, not infectious or yeah. not, not a threat. Directly, I don't know. At least case. not an immediate threat, right? Yeah. I don't know of any cases. My bet is that there were, but remember that in 1905, the Supreme Court decided Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which upheld a vaccine mandate of the state of Massachusetts as applied in the city of Cambridge. 1918 is not that long after, and it's right coming out of a war. So it's at a time where there's already one emergency on top of another, mm-hmm. and people are, uh, there are other limits of rights that are challenging the courts, and the courts are allowing them to go forward, limits on speech and other limits. So my suspicion is that there may have been um, some um, fatality, fatalism in terms of the stances of disorders. I don't know of specific cases, none that are taught in public health. Okay. Okay. Um, it's very, very interesting. Uh, do you think um, something will happen in the next few months uh, to, to, to clarify those questions or, or that'll take, you know, many, many more years? I think there'll be some cases and I, I think the courts are going to try and, and move fast on them. Uh, the religion cases, so some of them have already have temporary restraining orders, which means that states and cities cannot enforce orders uh, banning religious gatherings. Mm-hmm. Those are probably going to go forward fast. The states are going to appeal unless they decide to withdraw the orders. But the states are going to appeal, they're going to move to preliminary injunction. You can't appeal a temporary restraining order, so procedurally. Okay. You have to wait to the preliminary injunction, and those courts have set early dates for the preliminary injunction. If they grant a preliminary injunction, which they almost certainly will, because this is the bar for a temporary restraining order is actually higher than a preliminary injunction, that will almost certainly be appealed. So then we'll see some appeals. I think we'll see some uh, litigation on the religion front moving fast, the other cases, I think, will come up as, as more, more as fines, where people who have been fined for violating the orders go through the court, and that will take longer. What about the decision about distinguishing essential versus non-essential services, which seems fraught with, uh, yeah, I mean, quite problematic? Mm-hmm. So courts tend to defer to, a pub, to, to authorities in this, uh, on these matters in relation to public health. However, that has not been true for the two t- temporary restraining orders in um, Kansas and Kentucky. Both of them raised the distinction between religious services and others, and the distinction between essential and non-essential as an issue. Uh, we'll see if the deference uh, goes, if the higher courts go back to, to higher deference. Courts are hesitant to step in. Now, um, the standard, so the standard they would normally apply to violations of rights is a very high bar, the strict scrutiny standard. But for these public health, uh, uh, issues in an emergency, they often apply a lower standard of review where they allow the state. So every law is going to make distinction. You have to judge the line somewhere, and the courts are probably going to be pretty differential to the state in drawing those lines for good or bad. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. Um, I, um, you know, I must say, I, I, I don't know. I, I personally, 
like um, the idea that we we learn to live together through you know and set the limits of our behaviors through the courses and each said uh, as opposed to regulations mm -hmm. uh, but but clearly it's it's a complicated matter <laughs> okay. and, uh, everything's uh, human so there's some writings that say all of these courts direct top-down regulation and the third one is criminal law are all ways in which we try to regulate behavior each right. of them has pluses and minuses and what's the right mixture um, it's a whole bodies of study how do we mix this to achieve optimal results of course the question is who decides what an optimal result going back to that well we should bring up that um you know yeah. there's an outsized influence um that 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 it seems like trial lawyers have um on deciding how society should should do should do this meaning i could probably convince many patients and a group of physicians in mm -hmm. terms of what you know how one should best do this mm -hmm. um but but it's it's a pretty fractured fractured group certainly physicians i should say are a very fractured group in terms of yeah. figuring out you know like just here me and michelle have differences in how, how we would do things um but but the trial lawyers are very you know are, are, are fairly organized um they're they're fairly well off and they're very influential on one side of the political coin uh, which makes them, which makes it very, very hard to kind of, um, you know, push through, uh, um, push through any type of meaningful change that I think would, would, would make, would, would make more, more sense for mm -hmm. society uh, as, as a whole. So you have a very self-interested party, I think, uh, that, that kind of is, is, a, is a barrier to. So make, I live in California, and I would yeah. work on vaccine stuff. We yeah. have just worked on two vaccine laws, and we had the California Medical Association with us all the way. They're very good at what they do. They're very organized. <laughs> I would pull out that, the that in California, we have a law that limits caps in tort liability for medical malpractice that many lawyers feel is over-favorable to the doctors. Right. So you'd probably hear the lawyers say the same thing about the doctors from the other side. Uh, I admit that I'm not well-placed to actually compare. <laughs> I don't have, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm an academic. I, right. I, my familiarity with lawyers is mostly as ex-students that come to say hi, and that's not seeing them as lobbies. No, you, you've been uh, terrific and, and clearly uh, fair in, in your, your portrayal of the situation. Uh, Dorit, where can people uh, follow you? I, I think they should follow you. You, you have great insights on, on a variety of topics. Well, I'm on uh, Twitter as uh, DoritMI. That's my okay. username. Um, we'll put that on the, sh on the show notes. And, and for uh, I, you, you really raised thought-provoking points and questions. Thank you for this discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.